grace and peace, guys. I am your host, K-Dub, and I want to welcome you to another episode of All Things Theology. All Things Theology exists to talk about all of Christianity. All Things Theology desires for Christians to grow in every aspect of their walk. So I hope that this podcast encourages you. I want to thank those listening on all podcast apps. Make sure to subscribe and share the link if this blesses you. Uh, Thanks to those watching visually on YouTube as well. Make sure to subscribe. Uh, Give this video a like. Drop a comment if you have any questions. Um, uh, This podcast is part of the Bar Network. Check them out. They have a lot of great podcast hosts there. And if you have a question, feel free to drop an email at kdubtrue at gmail.com. Well, guys, I'm very excited for today's episode. Um, I'm pretty sure many of my listeners uh, know of him. I have Neil Shinby with me. How are you doing, brother? Hi, Chris. I'm doing well. That's good. That's good. Well, you know, I reached out to you to talk about critical race theory. Um, that's kind of been the that's kind of been a popular thing uh, uh, going on in critical race theory. What, what could you explain to us, like, what is critical race theory? Sure. So, critical race theory originally was a legal movement that began in kind of the late seventies, eighties. Uh, uh, the father of critical race theory is probably Derek Bell, who was the first black law professor at Harvard, the tenured tenured professor at Harvard. And um, the movement was then grew. So it began as a legal movement. And they were interested in understanding how the law functioned to um, justify white dominance in society. That was their sort of um, their assumption. The law was a way to conceal essentially systems that promoted white supremacy and that promoted racial disparities. Uh, that's the lens through which they viewed the law. But then since then, critical race theory has really grown. It spread uh, into the education. So in 1995, uh, Lad- Ladson Billings and Tate uh, wrote a paper that put critical race theory into education. And now you see it everywhere. You see critical race theory in uh, medicine. <laughs> you see it in the arts, in literature. So uh, to limit it to just the law is really anachronistic. It's short-sighted. So it's really spread everywhere. And it's always see it's a lens through which to view these various disciplines. You're always looking at how uh, racial power is hidden or concealed beneath these otherwise colorblind systems. You know, you look around, you say, I don't, maybe some people say, I don't see a lot of overt racism anymore. I mean, sure, in, in the 1800s, you had slavery, people in chains. It was horrible. And after that, you had lynching, you had black codes, you had Jim Crow. But, you know, we had the civil rights movement. God answered the prayers of his people who begged him to end these systems of, of grievous injustice. And while there is racism today, I don't see it. I don't look around and see, like, people in chains. I don't see burning crosses. So, and, But the answer to that is racism has gone underground. So critical race theorists would say that racism doesn't go away. It just evolves. It adapts and becomes covert. Right. So we have to do the work to excavate that those hidden systems which perpetuate that same racial inequality. So that's that's in a nutshell. Yeah, I yeah. guess it was not a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was good and helpful. Um, do you ever remember a time like when you first encountered like critical race theory? Was there was there a point in time where you can be like, yeah, this is where I was. This is kind of like the arguments I first heard. What was your kind of first involvement with this, and why did you start to even speak out against it? Sure. You know, I was totally 
out of my wheelhouse, right? So I am a theoretical chemist by training, and I got interested in apologetics when I became a Christian in graduate school 20 years ago. But I was interested in things like showing the gospel is true. Is Jesus God's son? Right. Did he rise from the dead? Is the Bible reliable? Things like that. And I was not focused on cultural issues like, uh, you know, showing or just just not. I was not. I mean, I, you know, I'm pro-life, so I understood how to make a pro-life argument. But beyond that, I was not really thinking about politics. And so and, and of course, I mean, I was against racism. <laughs> I mean, I hope all Christians say uh, that I that I, I mean, personally, in my own experience, when I've gone to these very conservative evangelical churches, they've been filled with people who truly love one another Mm-hmm. who hated racism, who hated sexism, who wanted to get along with their brothers in Christ to to witness to the community. So um, so I, I assume that was just, again, I'm not saying there's no racism. I'm just saying that my experience in these churches was loving and genuine and right. compassionate. But then around, you know, around the time of Black Lives Matter, I began seeing um, that became very prominent. And you heard this language that was new to me, like mm-hmm. white privilege and and actually, it's funny, I had a couple of friends, one Asian woman and one black woman who I knew through the apologist community, and they were really loudly opposed to this, what they were calling white privilege theory. Mm. I was like, white what now? Like, I, would, I don't know. What are you talking about? And they, they were like, no, this is, a, this is like a really, really bad thing. And I was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. Whatever. I guess that's your thing. It's not my thing. All right. Uh, but they were really adamant. And then, you know, a year or two later, I went back to them. I was like, ladies, I am sorry. <laughs> I, I brushed you off, but you were you were right. You know, around 20, you know, 16, 17, I, I saw this in our culture everywhere, even in the church. And so anyway, uh, the really turning point was I picked up a book that was cited by Jordan Peterson. So I was interested in Jordan Peterson uh, because I saw him taking off. You know, I saw him everywhere. I kind of wanted to know what he was about. I'm not a big fan of his. I'm kind of like, whatever, he's a guy. He's popular. So I wrote an essay about him from a Christian perspective. But in one of the talks he gave, he mentioned this book called Race, Class, and Gender. And he talked about the contents. And he called it postmodern neo-Marxism. And he talked about how crazy it was. And I said, this sounds really... And he read read one sentence from it. I can still quote it. He said, um, the sentence said something like this. Uh... The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine idea. Wow. And I was like, wait, I was like, hold on, what? They said what? That that objectivity is best reached through rational thought. That's a Western and masculine idea. Mm. So I got I got to read this book. Yeah. So I I bought the book. It's this 500 page anthology, and I read it. You know, it took me like weeks. When I was done, I was like. This is a big deal because this is not just some random, you know, ideas floating around. This is a worldview. This is a way of looking at reality. And I suddenly have a name for what I'm seeing in the culture and the church. And it all fits together. The other thing is I was kind of seeing these things as separate. I was like, well, you got, you know, white privilege over here and you've got, you know, uh, heteronormativity and the LGBTQ movement and you've got then economic issues about classism and, and you know socialism but what i didn't realize is that this was sort of a unifying framework that fit all these different quote-unquote oppressions together right. and it made a lot of sense to me suddenly yeah and this is where right um maybe you can go in on this where kind of intersectionality comes to play where um you would so it seems like what you're saying is it's not just well 
critical race theory can just be isolated and you can kind of reject the feminism and kind of other intersectionality. It seems like what you're saying is they all are one cohesive ideology that goes together. Yeah, so the history is very complicated. So if you, you can trace it way back, again, all the way. It go, it, it, so Karl Marx, the consensus is that Karl Marx was the first true critical theorist. He didn't coin the phrase, but the ideas sort of trace back to him. Uh, but they've, they've changed a lot. So I'm not saying he, it's, it's all Marxism. I'm saying it's evolved quite a bit. It has. And in the same way, you can trace it through the Frankfurt School, trace it through Antonio Gramsci, um, but what we have today, you have all these different fields. You have critical race theory. You have queer theory. You have critical pedagogy, critical legal studies, um, post-colonialism. You have all these different fields, and you literally have different departments, people doing this different, different research in different journals. But since about 2010, all of these different fields have sort of coalesced within this one framework, which sometimes is called critical social justice. And like you said, the idea of intersectionality brings them all together. And so Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined that term in 1989, she said, look, you can't you can't just look at me. She's a black woman. She's like, you can't just look at a black woman as black plus woman because you have unique experiences as a black woman that a black man doesn't have or a white woman doesn't have. And so they have a unique perspective. And in her in her view, they face unique forms of oppression. And then. Then other and she and others brought in the not just race and gender, but also class, mm -hmm. disability status, religion, mm -hmm. and a host of other factors. Then and and her whole point was you can't pull it apart. So, for example, a great quote from someone who buys into this ideology. Uh, it's from Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in that book, he says things like, you know, you cannot be an anti-racist. Uh, and not also be anti-classist. Yeah. You you ha you cannot be an anti-racist and also be homophobic. You have to fight all of these oppressions simultaneously because they're all the the term that's used is they're all interlocking systems of oppression. Uh, so that's why. So in a sense, critical race theory. If you go back to like the '80s, say maybe back then it was kind of easier to say, well, I'm just going to look at race only. Uh, but today, really, you have people like. Ibram X. Kendi saying, no, you have to look at anti-racism, anti-classism, anti-sexism, uh, anti-transphobia, and all of these isms together. Right, right. Um, I made a tweet a while ago in, in which you responded to. I, sta I stated that, uh, you know, critical race theory doesn't ask the question, does racism exist in this scenario, right? They ask the question... Um, how does racism exist in this scenario? Uh, you know, rather starting with the assumption and then finding evidence to justify it. Uh, maybe you can go more into that because you explain, hey, this is this is exactly from Robin DiAngelo's work. Like, I thought you were quoting her. I, yeah, I have not I, even I, read I, it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read you the quote okay. because I, I thought you're you're putting me on because I was like, he's <laughs> quoting, he's quoting. So here's the quote. From her paper, Addressing Whiteness in Nursing Education. There's an, also another a similar quote in her book, What Does It Mean to Be White? I'll read you the quote from the paper. Yeah. She says this, The question is not, did racism take place? Mm. But rather, in which ways did racism manifest in this specific context? Mm -hmm. Because she's, uh, she continues by explaining how whiteness is intrinsically linked to demic relations of white racial domination. 
It's it's dynamic, relational, and operating at all times. That's a quote from her paper. And so that is absolutely her view that the system is, it permeates society. And that's not just from these papers, that other book. In her book, White Fragility, she's emphatic that racism is always at work, even in interracial friendships. Racism cannot be absent because we're part of this system, this web of social relations. And so even your best friend, if he's white or, you know, uh, there is some racism, it's somehow coloring, no pun intended, your friendship. (laughs) Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, to me, man, you know, this ideology just kind of seems strange. But one thing that I've kind of uh, noticed, maybe we can kind of get into this. uh, I've seen a lot of Christians kind of embracing um, this ideology, you know, saying things like, hey, critical race theory is an analytical tool. Um, even some people full on saying, well, hey, yeah, I do affirm critical race theory ideology. Um, maybe you can explain to us, how are these two systems incompatible? Sure, yeah. So we have to be very precise because what I hear people saying is they say, you know, all, all I do is I talk about racism in the church and suddenly everybody labels me a Marxist, right. a critical race theorist, and I'm just trying to talk about my experiences and racism and here you're calling me names. <laughs> So I sympathize, and and here's a here's people are like, well, that doesn't happen. Well, here's the thing, you know, in the last few weeks, I've seen the the term Christian nationalism being thrown around. Right. People saying Christian nationalism is terrible. Now here's a, and people are worried. I see conservatives saying, hey, look, you, can you define what you mean by that? Because do you mean that I can't love my country? Is that Christian nationalism? Are you saying I shouldn't worship my country? Well, I don't. I don't do that. <laughs> so. And they're afraid, frightened that if you're not being precise, that you'll tar them with this brush unfairly. Right. So I get that. So that's fair. Right. So what I would say is let's go to the actual sources. Let's read quotes from critical race theorists and say, look, these are the ideas. I don't care what you call it. Call it, call it critical race theory. Call it cultural Marxism. Call it intersectionality. But these ideas, regardless of the label, are incompatible with Christianity. Right. Um, so what are they? So. Uh, if you look at the the literature, I can quote Matsuda, I can quote Crenshaw, Kumasi, a whole ton of critical race theorists. Um, but they, here's the four sort of core tenets of critical race theory that that are common. They don't agree on everything, but here are the the main ideas that are central to this area. So the first idea is that racism is permanent, pervasive, and normal. So again, racial oppression doesn't doesn't just go away; it evolves, it adapts. So it's always it's sort of always here. It's always been here. And now, again, we said, well, how do you justify that claim? Because you look around and, and so, I mean, some black people are like, well, I don't feel oppressed. I don't feel like I live in a racist country. I feel like I live in a pretty normal country. Right. So the second tenet then explains that. It says that racism today is hidden under claims of objectivity, neutrality, universality, meritocracy, mm. and colorblindness. That these labels, these ideas, are actually ways to conceal racism and oppression. So yeah, we look around, we see laws that are colorblind, we see systems that purport to be colorblind, we see people claiming that, well, you know, we have a meritocracy here, we hire the best candidate. They say all that, maybe they do that, but all of those ideas are actually ways that conceal how the system operates to retain the racial status quo. So that's their second tenet is how they explain why you can't see. I don't walk around like people burning crosses in my lawn and say, well, yeah, because racism has gone underground. It's now covert. Mm. 
The third idea is the idea of lived experience, that lived experience or experiential knowledge uh, that belongs to people of color. It's critical for understanding racism. So they're not saying that white people can't understand racism at all. They, they believe that because you got Rabin D'Angelo who's making a lot of money talking <laughs> about racism. Right. Right? So, but but their, their point is that people of color have a special insight mm. due to their lived experience. So a phrase you'll hear is, you know, I don't need to read a book about racism. I live it. Because right. my lived experience tells me these things that, that give me a unique voice. And to, you know, and, and a white person can't have that experience, which in, in some ways gives that person authority then to speak about racism. Right. And then finally, um, again, this idea, uh, a three intersectionality, the idea that racism, sexism, classism, and heterosexism, all these oppressions are linked together. They must be fought simultaneously. So this is, again, the four core ideas. Racism is permanent, pervasive, and normal. It's hidden beneath claims of colorblindness. The lived experience of people of color is you know, critical to understanding racism. And finally, that all of these systems of oppression are linked together and must be dismantled simultaneously. Okay, so that's critical race theory. And if you want to call it something else, you can. But if you read critical race theorists, they say this is what their core beliefs are. Right. Now, how does it conflict with Christianity? I guess it's the next question. I would say in, in lots of ways. Um, so first of all, I think the obvious one, and the one that I think we see a lot in the secular anti-racist movement, is the idea that you know to be truly anti-racist, you must also be anti-sexist, anti-classist, and pro-LGBTQ, and, you know, you can't be transphobic, you can't be homophobic, because all these oppressions are mutually interlocking. And as Christians, we'd say, wait, 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 race is different, and race and ethnicity, you talk about the difference there, but race and, race and ethnicity are different than sexuality. There's nothing wrong with ethnicity, right? That's God-given, God-ordained, but sexuality is something that God has rules about. So you can't just claim that being black and being, say, gay or lesbian are equivalent just because they're both, quote unquote, oppressed. Mm. So right off the bat, we'd say, wait, we disagree with that. We can't we cannot just accept that, you know, all of these things should be treated in the same way because they're different. One, one is God ordained and one is forbidden, regulated. Um, so that's that's one thing off the bat. Another thing is the idea of this. Uh, lived experience. And so what happens in practice, because people say, you know, I have this insight into my oppression. Well, what, if you really are given that, that lived experience, that knowledge through lived experience, what is there that I can do to challenge your claims? Because what we don't realize is, okay, you have lived experience. I get that. Like I had Cheerios for breakfast today. Uh, okay, I, that's that's true. That's not unbiblical. I'm not going to challenge that. Uh, so I, but but what if I said I had cheers for breakfast this morning, and that's a sign from God that I should marry five women? So hold up, right. whoa, hold up. Right. You had an experience, but you interpreted it wrongly. Okay. Now here's the thing: we have to leave room for saying you can have your lived experience, but it has to be interpreted through A, scripture, and then B, other objective evidence. If your lived experience, your interpretation contradicts scripture, then your interpretation is wrong. Right. And two, if your interpretation contradicts objective evidence, it's also got to be, it's wrong, or at least got to be questioned. So, and that plays into, then they'll say, wait a minute, that's why it's so important to say, well, but your claims of objectivity are a way to disguise racism. This is where it's really hard. Yes. Now what if I say, look, 
my lived experience is that, um, and here's, I'll use a, an example that will make people see really quickly why it's a problem. My lived experience is that I am polyamorous. I want to have five wives. I just, that's who I am. And if you invalidate, if you say I can't because of scripture, because of scripture objectively says that one man and one woman is what marriage is, well, that's your heteronormative interpretation of scripture. Right. You claim it's quote unquote objective, but you're disguising the way that heterosexuals impose their values on me and oppress me as a polyamorous man. So the point is, so as you see immediately, once you start giving in to lived experience as an authoritative claim that can't be argued with, right. you're in big trouble. Right. Now, now apply that to the terrace. It's trickier here because people want to say, well, okay, look, I don't know what it's like to be black. And so when people come to you and say, man, this, this guy was super racist to me and I'm really broken up. I'm not going to go to them and show me the receipts. You show me some video. And I'll believe you. I, I say, man, I'm sorry. I believe you. Right. right. But if they then say, and I conclude, therefore, these truths about the United States as a whole, I'd say, hey, man, look, I totally sympathize with you. I totally agree. But we always have, and I'm not going to start challenging you right there in the moment, but I want to make sure that all of our beliefs, mine, yours, everybody's, is submitted to scripture and also then testing it against uh, you know, nature, God's revelation in nature. Is this really the way that the law works? Is it really the truth about how racism works in society? So we have, no, I'm not saying you're right or you're wrong. I'm just saying we have to submit all of our interpretations to scripture and then also to objective evidence. Right. And, but right there, they say, but that, see, that, that's there is white supremacy. Right. But man, if we lose hold of that, what's the, what are the controls now? Yeah. If you can, if you, if I can just say, I know as a half Indian, this, 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 and this, and I don't have to be accountable to any evidence at all. That's a problem. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyways, and then, and then the, again, the last thing is that I'll give you three. Last one. If racism is normal and permanent and pervasive, and it literally infests every system and every relationship and everything, then that will tear you up inside. It'll make you paranoid. It'll make you angry. It'll make you miserable. And what's more, if you go into the church, and I see my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I don't say, my brother, my sister, my sister, my sister, my brother. I say oppressor, oppressor, oppressed, 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 oppressor. That's the death of the church. Yeah. I cannot see my siblings in Christ primarily according to their race, class, gender, and even attribute labels to them when they've done nothing to me that's wrong. And that again, that'll make you paranoid. And I think we see that sometimes in people. Some of these, some people you see just online. Twitter is a cesspool, whatever. But. <laughs> But you see people that are just, I mean, okay, it's, to be fair, it's on both sides, I'd say. But people that are just, they have this hair trigger sensitivity that everything is racism because they've been conditioned to see it everywhere. Why? Because that's a tenet of critical race theory. It is everywhere. So no wonder they feel like it's always lurking around every corner. So and I, again, I, so we can go into a lot more. I don't want to, again, I, I'm making, I'm going to make clear, I'm not saying that your lived experience is garbage. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying racism is done. It's all in the past. We solved it in 1964 or whatever. No, I'm not saying that either. Right. But I'm saying these assumptions, these ideological assumptions are corrosive and deadly to, to all kinds of things, but especially to a functional, healthy church. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to your second point, because I've seen this kind of, this thought permeate inside the church about kind of, um, experience and it, it's almost as, as if 
experience has become the new canon itself, you know, where this is what we appeal to over and against like the exegesis of scripture, because right, that's, you know, logic, that's white supremacy. Um, you, you, you talked about objectivity. Well, we can't use that because that's the, that's, that's white thought or something, something to that nature. Uh, maybe you can explain why that kind of thought is dangerous, especially for Christians. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, you, you know, you say that and people are like, oh, come on, Chris, you got to be kidding me. Look, the Smithsonian Institute over the summer, they had an infographic, uh, the National, Muse- uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Yep. That that museum, mm-hmm. the Smithsonian, had an infographic that listed the elements of a whiteness and a white culture. And one of them was rational, <laughs> linear thinking. Right. And I'm like, is did I just read a neo-Nazi manifesto or the <laughs> Smithsonian? Because you know, rational linear thinking, believe it or not, is something that's common to all people. Mm-hmm. It's not a white thing. Right. That's, that's that's so racist. And yet they thought that was anti-racist. So now, so I'm not. I'm telling, my point is, that it's not a straw man. That's really what people are saying. Exactly. And I, I mean, maybe not everybody, but so why is that deadly? Well, wh- what now? Be careful here again. I want to be precise. Do all of us have biases when we read scripture? Of course we do. Of course we do. We all bring biases, right? So I'm not saying that any of us has this God's eye view. No one's, you know, we're Protestants. We're not little popes running around saying like, this is what, you know, thus saith Neil about Romans 1. No, we all, we all have to interpret carefully in community with people around us with in the context of tradition and saying, what is what do great Christians of the past have they interpreted the scriptures? But we are aiming at God's revelation. We're aiming at objective truth. We can't say objective truth itself is just a disguise for whiteness. No, no, it's not because God's not white. <laughs> We're aiming at God's truth. Right. So once you know, and I could go into the history of that. Where does that idea come from? But my only point is this. We claim there is is a God's eye view. There is God's way of seeing things. There is God's truth communicated through scripture that is objective. And we can't, obviously, we're not perfect interpreters, but we can try to approximate uh, God's truth. We can aim for it at least. And we can't just dismiss it as, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, is my interpretation true or false? So that's the main thing. Once you lose that foothold, I'm not going to be clear. I'm not claiming that me or you or anyone are perfectly neutral or objective. I'm just saying there is an objective truth and we're aiming for interpretation. And then the other thing is too, how do we get there? And, you know, for, for, for decades, centuries, Protestants have said, we try to aim for the author author's intent, the author's intent in scripture through using historical grammatical exegesis. We want to say, what did it mean in the context of the culture to the people in the first century or the sixth century or whatever, BC, at what was, what did it mean when it was written? That's how we interpret the meaning. Okay. Now, how do you know that truth? Right. Now, how do I know what say Paul meant in Galatians? Okay. Uh, does it help? That, now, and this is where it gets really funny. Well, and I go into it later, but does it really help me that I'm white or black or Hispanic? You know what would really help me? To interpret Galatians, if I were a first century Jew, right? <laughs> that's what that, that kind of no. I'm, I'm, I'll grant that if I were a first century Jew living in Palestine, 
or I were you know living in Asia Minor, I might have some lived experience that's pertinent to that interpretation, right? But, I, but no one is today. I mean, we're not looking around like looking around. Looking, who's the first entry Jew? Raise your hand. Right. So, is it possible that someone will have special insight into you know Galatians because they happen to be Hispanic or Asian or whatever? I mean, maybe I don't know. I, the funny story I heard a story of um, a culture. I think it was in Africa, but in that culture. Goats were really valuable and sheep were worthless. So in the parable about the sheep and the goats, the translators were scratching their heads being like, man, how do we communicate to them that in this parable, the sheep are good and the goats are bad because in their culture, it's the opposite. Wow. So you know, you can imagine how in some cultures, automatically in a Jewish culture, like, yeah, sheeps are good, goats are bad. Whereas in this culture, they're like confused. They're like, wait a minute, what's this story about? Mm. So we can recognize that cultures will have some blind spots, but here's the key. The best the best way to, under, to interpret scripture is not by happening to be born into some culture or some gender or whatever. The best thing you can have is you can study the original languages, you can study history, you can study the original cultures, and you can pray and you can have a humble heart. Right. All those things are more important than happening to be half Indian or black or white or Irish or whatever. So, my, so I'm not I'm trying to thread the needle here. It, it is true that our experiences can shape how we interpret things, and we should always be open to re-examining our interpretation. But you don't get just a blank a blank check or a free pass to say, "Well, I just have the truth from on high because I happen to be half Indian." Say, right? No, definitely. You know, we're talking about uh, is critical race theory compatible with Christianity, and that's actually one of the titles of a debate you had with uh, Rasul Berry. And um, for those who are listening, check that out. I think it'll be insightful, no matter you know, what side you land on this conversation, but, um, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that, and, and I've seen people use this kind of argumentation as well, but I, I thought that he was kind of using it as well against you that, well, you know, that we can affirm CRT because it has true things in it. You know, um, I've mm-hmm. seen people kind of use that argument. Well, Hey, you know, you're a capitalist, um, you know, you, you know, um, though, some people say, hey, look, you recognize that are philosophies that aren't coming from the Bible, but you accept it because it's true. So how would you respond yeah. to someone like, like Rasul Berry or, or someone like, like that that says, hey, look, CRT has true things in it. That's why I affirm it. Yeah, what I would just say is, sure, critical race theorists say true things. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I've read thousands of pages of critical race theory, and I, I read things like, oh, that's true. I didn't know that. That's, that's interesting. Right. And it, so absolutely, we, we should affirm that. It's silly to be like, no, it's, I mean, one big thing in critical race theory that they're really emphatic about is that race is a social construct. And Christian would be like, amen. <laughs> I mean, wait, that's absolutely true, right? right. And, and I actually had some, you know, neo-Nazis getting angry with me because I was like, race is a social construct. They're like, no, we are proud and white. And I was like, you are not. <laughs> you are wrong and sinful. But they, they wanted to believe that race was a real biological thing. And I just pointed out to them, look, uh, you know, there, was a, there are many ways to point that out. But look, you call people Asian is a race. You're, you're Asian Americans, a racial category, right? Have you been to Asia? It's a huge place. It's ridiculous. Right. You know, that's just a category we've invented, Asian. Give me a break. Or the other point I make is, look, uh, when you have a biracial couple uh, in, in the U.S., uh, statistically, in the U.S., the average African-American in the U.S. has uh, 80 percent African ancestry and about 20 percent European ancestry. 
basically, unfortunately, due to a lot of rape that went on under slavery, right? So Africa, average black person has 80% African ancestry and 20% European. If that African-American man, say, marries a white woman and they have kids, if the kids have dark enough skin, we will race them as black. But here's the kicker. They'll be like, oh, you're, yeah, that, you know, that, that kid's black. Because he, look, he looks black. Right. He has majority of European ancestry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, so that shows you. See how, see how it's so obvious? And they got really mad, by the way, when I pointed that out. My only point is, so critical race theorists affirm that. Do we want to deny that? No, we want to say, yeah, okay, you're right here. But my point is, what are the core ideas driving CRT? If you ask them, you're not asking them what you happen to affirm, right. but what are your central tenets? Mm-hmm. It's the core of your discipline. That's what I'm saying is false and deeply corrosive. Right. And I like to make the analogy between critical race theory and queer theory, right? Do queer theorists sometimes say true things? Of course they do. I mean, queer theorists talk about how things like, you know, they might say pink is not naturally a feminine color. Like, you know, 500 years ago, men wore pink shirts. That was considered manly. It was like red. And you're like, oh, okay. So that's a true statement, right? You know, so, okay, I'm okay with that. Does that mean that critical, sorry, that queer theory is compatible with Christianity? Well, not at all. (laughs) Because the core assumption of critical, I'm sorry, of queer theory is that gender is a social construct. And in some ways, even sex, they would say, is a social construct. They'd separate the two. They'd say, in some sense, both are social constructs. And we'd say, no. <laughs> so I, that's a very helpful analogy. When people say, well, is critical race theory compatible? Well, it says true things. And I would say, so does queer theory. So does Islam. Islam affirms some true things. Right. So does Mormonism. Mm-hmm. But we'd never say that these, as ideologies, as, as in terms of their central core tenets, those are incompatible with Christianity. And that's why I would say, you know, treat it as carefully and cautiously and with as much you know, danger as you would queer theory. Right. No, that's, that's totally spot on. I've, I've used the analogy that, you know, Arianism says some true things, right? They taught that Jesus was yeah. a 100% man, but yeah. the other part of Arianism denies <laughs> his deity. So you, we, wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't thus conclude Arianism, you know, is true. With, you know, using that same kind of argumentation. Yeah, I, I find it helpful. Actually, I think Kevin DeYoung had an article recently where he said, and actually John Piper said this too. He's like, rather than using these labels, ask them about the ideas. Yes. I, want you, I don't care what you call it. Right. If, do you believe that claims of objectivity, neutrality, universality, these are all tools to disguise racism? Mm-hmm. Do you believe that or not? Do you believe that lived experience gives people authority to speak about, say, racism or even to understand the Bible. Do you believe that? Um, so ask about the ideas, not about what you call them. And by the way, those ideas are found not just in critical race theory, but in, say, in, say, queer theory or in critical pedagogy or in a different field. So the point is, it's not we're not picking on this one discipline. It's actually there are a lot of these ideas are floating around everywhere in our culture today. So it's better to pick out the ideas than this label. And also, by the way, if you just burn down the label like, oh, you know, just new critical race theory. They're just going to call it something else. They're going to call it like cultural sensitivity training, right? right? So, you know, you got to be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more canny when you when you attack these ideas. You got to attack the again the ideas, not the label, because they'll just switch them on you. Yes. Oh, definitely. Um, something else that I've kind of this argument that I've seen, especially to men who are reformed. I, I know that you um, affirm the historic reformed faith. Uh, I do as well. Many times you'll hear something like, "I don't understand how you don't under." 
you know, you don't understand or you don't affirm critical race theory, you know, when you affirm total depravity. Um, mm-hmm. Is total depravity, you know, equated with like uh, critical race tenets, like, you know, that racism permeates everywhere and it's, it's this unescapable thing? Is that compatible? Or is that the same thing as total depravity? You know, it's funny, a, a number of secular atheists have pointed out that the critical race theory and all these critical theories, they really are actually mimicking Cal- not just Christianity, but Calvinism, the idea that this total depravity, that sin is everywhere, we're all filthy, and that, that there's, no, there's no redemption. But they point out there's a, there's, a, there's a similarity in how they see this diffuse, you know, inescapable stain that taints uh, everyone. It's not, and on the one hand, critical race theory says it's racism, and Calvinists say it's sin. And, you know, Christians, we all, they all affirm, we'd all affirm that sin taints everything. But I think there are two things there. Or there actually, there are several problems there. Uh, one, one is that uh, while racism is a sin, it's not the only sin. Right. So if we want to, so you got to be really careful there that the way that critical race theory is viewing the racism is that it is sort of functioning as sin, right. as almost identical to sin. Whereas we would say, well, it's one of many sins, but other sins have nothing to do with power or oppression. I mean, adultery is a sin for the woman and the man. Uh, uh, jealousy is a sin. All, all these, so that's there's no, uh, idolatry. You're not oppressing anyone with idolatry. You're just making a little graven image there, right. but it's still a sin. So we would want to be very careful that while while, oppre- while real oppression is absolutely a sin, but not all sin is oppression. Right. There are some sins that are not oppressive. I'm not hurting anyone, and yet it's still a sin. Um, another thing is that, again, it's very asymmetric. They would say it's very common for critical race theorists to say that uh, that people of color cannot be racist by definition because racism is prejudice plus power. And right. so uh, a person of color can be prejudiced but not racist because their prejudice is not supported by institutional power. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to say, well, because of total depravity, racism is just is, is everywhere. It's all of our hearts. Well, that's not what critical race theory is saying. They're saying it's in, it's it's not first of all, it's not in a heart. It's in systems, and it, because of that, it's not in systems that benefit people of color. Wow. And so somehow there's an asymmetry there that sh- it's not. If we're thinking about it in terms of sin, I would, by the way, I would totally affirm that in every heart are the seeds of every sin, like John Owen said. So therefore, in my heart, there's all kinds of wick of evil and wickedness that I suppress. There's partiality towards my race, class, gender, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I just, I like the name Neil because it sounds awesome and your name is worse than mine. I'm better than you. Yeah. There's all, there's every kind of wickedness in my heart, right. but not just in my heart, in your heart, in this woman's heart, in this, you know, everybody's heart. Absolutely. So it's, it's very different because we're not, they're, they're saying it's now specially in a, a clinging to white people or this white supremacist system. Um, and then finally, while we would affirm that sin is everywhere and that racism is a sin, so in some sense, all of us are inclined to partiality towards, say, our own race. Okay, I can I can grant that if you're willing to spread it all around to everybody, sure. But yeah, I'd say this. In my point of consciousness, like you you look at another person, another believer, for example, I don't interpret them as being racist to me. So, for example, if we already said, well, there's racism in everybody's heart. Okay, I grant, I grant that because it's somehow it's sinful and it's okay. But I don't go to you and you say, say, hey, Neil, what's up? I say, what did you mean by that? It's your <laughs> racism coming through, right? That's the way I'm misusing. In fact, I'm actually violating the Bible's commands to be charitable, to think the best of you. Mm-hmm. 
So while we're all stained by sin, we don't, we're not consciously actively sinning, especially believers who've been full of the Spirit and who desire to do good. And absolutely, I shouldn't then put it on you and say, you are racist. You're denying it, but you absolutely are. And until you modify your behavior, you're not repentant. <laughs> There's so much there that it goes way beyond just saying, oh, we're all inclined to partiality. Of course we are. Right. It's not what's being said. It's saying something much more significant, significant than that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. You mentioned it a little bit. But, you know, what critical race theory does that I think is so um, devastating and that why Christians should, you know, stay away from this ideology is you talked about it having no redemption. It's, you know, once a racist, mm. always a racist. It, it can, you know, there is no, um, there's no hope for the racist. You know, uh, how, what, what would you say to that, you know? I mean, you can, and it's fair to say, well, of course there's not redemption in critical race theory because it's sociology. It's, you know, it's, it's a secular system. Right. It's not meant, it's like going to a mechanic and saying, well, where's the redemption in fixing my car? You know, you're a mechanic, you, you, you got these tools to fix my car, but there's no redemption with you. And you're like, I'm a mechanic, man, leave me alone. Like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to save your soul. I'm trying to fix your carburetor. Right. So that's fair. It's fair. Of course, there's a redemption in critical race theory because it's not, it's just a, looking at lo law and race and education. Okay, fair enough. But if you look at how it's embraced, not only by, in the secular world, I think it's clearly taken on more than just, uh, it's, it's more than just a neutral sort of discipline. Mm -hmm. It's people's li lives. I mean, Ibram X. Kendi, I quoted him earlier, he actually, his parents were Christians. And he says in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that he can't separate his parents' spirituality, their search for God's kingdom, from his anti-racism. He says, what they found in Christianity, I find in anti-racism. Mm. That's, 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 that's his words. So people, even if you're saying, well, this isn't meant to fill a spiritual need, he is telling you it is filling a spiritual need, at least for him, and I think clearly for a lot of people, they're looking to the system to atone for their sin. They want to confess. They want to be cleansed. They want to be forgiven. They want to be an ally. And it's functioning. And also, it makes them feel righteous. They can feel like I'm not one of the, I mean, sure, I have these racist patterns, and but I'm on the right side of history. I'm at least owning my racism. I'm trying to do better. That's the phrase they use. I'm working to be an ally. Right. I'm centering voices of color. These are all ways that they are trying to achieve a right standing, not before God, they don't believe in, but before their peers, before something. And we have to say that, and, 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 and you can see it in many people, it makes them miserable and actually admit, and very self-righteous too, because they feel like I'm doing the work. Right. You're not doing the work. Right. So I think one, we should acknowledge that. But then two, even for professing Christians who've embraced these ideas, what they will say often is, you know, okay, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We, we believe that, right? But now this is how you are supposed to be showing your sanctification, right? Being an anti-racist is part of your sanctification now. Okay, you're justified. We, we're, we're Protestants. We're Reformed. So we believe that you're justified through faith in Christ. But your sanctification now depends on you being anti-racist where that's being defined by critical race theory. And here's the problem. I would argue critical race theory is just false. Right. So you're binding people's consciences to do the certain things that actually are not only 
not in scripture, but that are actually contrary to scripture now. Right. And contrary to, I would argue, to, to, to reality. I mean, I'm saying, again, I'm not saying everything they say is, 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 a fall, is false and is an illusion. I'm just saying but some of the things they're telling you to do are things that you should say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's actually, that's actually unwise or actually wrong. So what I, and then, but then they're saying to you, well, if you're not going to do these certain actions, then you're not really walking with the Lord. You're not really seeking justice. You're not really loving your neighbor. And I would say, look, you got to show me from scripture where, where I, I am bound to do the X, Y, and Z. And if you can't, then you, you really shouldn't be binding my conscience to do that. Um, so I think, and then, and that's where you got, you got conflict in churches because if you really believe that you have to embrace these ideas and these doctrines and these policies to truly love your neighbor, and I say, no, I don't have to, well, that's an issue in the church, right? In, in the same way, if, if I say, I can be a Christian, I'm just going to go ahead and marry five women. And you say, no, you can't do that. It, there should be, there's going to be a real conflict there in the church, maybe even discipline, right. because I refuse to do what the Bible says. But the problem is, again, I would argue critical race theory is not going to be found in Scripture because in many ways it contradicts Scripture. Right. So that's a big problem. Yeah, totally agree. So I had a couple of Twitter, Twitter questions that uh, people have for you. Um, sure. I know you're not a prophet, but someone asked, where do you see the woke among us in the five years? You know. Yeah, I, I am not a prophet. People ask me that. Like, where are we headed as a culture? Where are we headed as a, as a church? Right. And uh, I always say, just live in the now. Yeah. Live in the now, right? God's not calling you to predict what's going to happen. God's calling you to be faithful right now. And by the way, not on Twitter, right. primarily. Right. At your local church. Amen. You're called to be faithful with your local church, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your pastors, with your elders, and with your friends, with your family, to preach the gospel to them. So... Don't worry overly about because you'll just go crazy. You you know you don't have a, a million followers. You're not the president. Right. You're not even a senator, right? So what I would focus on is how can I help my friends see that these ideas are bad? How can I help my friends see that you don't have to choose between fighting racism and uh, you know fighting? You, you can you don't have to embrace racism or embrace critical race theory. You can reject both. You can be like, I'm not going to be racist and I'm not going to embrace critical race theory. Right. So so. Focus on those things within your local context and, and and leave the rest to God, honestly. I mean, yeah, you know, go and vote, you know, go and do things in your community, but ultimately leave that in God's hands and focus on what he's, just obey him, right? Obey him by doing what he's called you to do. Right. Amen to that. Uh, the local church, the local church is so important and, um, man, Christians should be serving there. So, I, I mean, I totally agree with you right there. Uh, someone asked, um, they wanted to know your thoughts regarding critical race theory, like when it comes to like work. So critical mm-hmm. race theory training for employees, um, other indoctrinations under the, especially in, in the incoming Biden administration. Like how would yeah. they want to know, how would you respond hypothetically if like an employer mandated you or was encouraging others to attend like this training and, and you know, stuff like that? Yeah, the um, – the- He's very controversial, and understandably so, but James Lindsay is an atheist who's written a lot about critical theory and critical race theory, but he actually has a very good document or, or article about what to do in a in a racial, critical race theory you know, education program. Um, I, I'll try to find the link, but it's a good article. So whatever you think of James Lindsay, I think the article is helpful for just tips on how to oppose or to ask questions about these ideas. Um and it basically, and I think actually this is the format, it's, 
playing out in the culture too. I think the way it's playing out in the culture is that they're going to, people are going to begin to face lawsuits because people are realizing some of these trainings are violating uh, like title 19 statutes and civil rights act and things like that. They're, they're actually illegal. You know, when you tell someone that this race is inherently say evil or oppressive, you can't do that legally (laughs) in a federally funded program. They're beginning to sue these organizations. And I think that might actually end up scaring people off right now. There's no, monetary incentive. There's a lot of, you know, woke capitalism, you know, you, you, you do woke things and people buy your product. So there's no financial incentive right now for them to not be woke. But, um, I think when they start getting sued and they start losing lawsuits, they're finally going to say, you know, it's not worth it. Let's not, let's not do these things. Um, but yeah, and then there's another article from Quillette about a bunch of, I think it was lawyers or paralegals in Canada, (laughs) But they were able to successfully resist the sort of woke movement within their field. So the, their paralegal field was getting bombarded by the social justice ideology, and they fought back, and they won. They basically voted out all of the woke people and replaced them with non-woke people, and that was the end of that. Mm. So it was a so it was Quillette article. I think it was Canadian paralegals. Uh, I'll try to find you the links for that. You yeah. put it on your show notes, but. Um, but yeah, they just gave us a case study in how to resist this movement. Otherwise, man, I'm a homeschool dad. I, I can't, I mean, it, hel- it always helps to read the material. So uh, if you've read Robin DiAngelo and you've read even Max Kendi and you can quote them, then you can, you often have a leg up on the instructor because they're not going to, they, they probably have read those figures, but if you are familiar with it, they can't write you off as an, oh, you're just ignorant. You don't, you need to go home and do your homework. Yeah. I did my homework. It's right here. <laughs> so I'm ready to speak to you and to ask you questions. You can't brush me off. Right. So I mean, don't be aggressive, but I think you can gently push back. I mean, if I were in a training, I certainly would be asking a lot. As Greg Kokel says, a Christian apologist, ask questions. You know, push them, but push them in a way that asking questions to show the class, hey, these are good questions. You're not answering the questions. That'll often throw them off balance because they're used to teaching, but they're not used to ask the answering questions. Right. No, definitely. I would be I would be wrong if I didn't ask this question. This is from my biggest supporter, biggest listener, my wife. And so <laughs> <laughs> she wanted she wanted to know how did you come to the Lord? Oh, good question. Yeah, this is a, it's a long story. Um but miracles happen. That's the short answer, yeah. right? So I um I was not a Christian growing up, but a wonderful parents, wonderful family, but I went to I was went to college um and just didn't know anything about Christianity. But I met my future wife, Christina, who was a missionary kid, uh, at Inca- and she was in, went to Princeton together. And we actually began dating that idea, but, but the Lord used it for good because I went out, I was like, I had a compromise. I love this girl. She's wonderful. I'll start going to church with her. And our church in UC Berkeley, of all places, but in Berkeley, our church you know, preached the gospel. And, uh, and not only that, the people, like I, my professors, uh, a lot of my professors were in that church, were members of the church. And so I was like, man, these are smart people. Because I, my feeling back then was I am very smart and Christians are very dumb. Now, my wife's pretty smart, but okay, but she's a Christian, but whatever. So, so uh, my big barrier was feeling, was pride, basically. Uh, you know, I, I am too smart for Christianity. When I saw, you know, my pastor had a PhD from Cambridge. My you know, quantum physics professor sang in the choir. So I had to face up to the fact that these people were smarter than me and were Christians. And that's when I had to start 
thing, man, is this real? And then I realized I hate it because <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, Jesus is cool and God, I believe, actually, I believed in God, I believe in God, but you know, whatever, I'm sure that we can all have our different ways to God. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And you know, only dumb people believe that Jesus is the only way. <laughs> and here we got people that are very smart saying, no, Jesus is the only yeah. way. And I'm like, hey, I hate that message, actually. Mm. I, I, I can't just, oh, it's not pat him on the head. And yeah, but C.S. Lewis called, you know, the trilemma. It wasn't that, but it was basically, it came down to, for me, are you going to admit you were totally wrong about everything, mm. about religion, about God, about Jesus, and come in like a little child? Mm. I was like, no, man, I'm not going to come in the same door as all those stupid redneck Bible-thumping fundamentalists. And God was like, yes, you are. <laughs> so that, but that was... In that, so that for me, you know, was the choice I had to make is like, am I going to admit that I know nothing about the God who actually exists wow. and humble myself and follow Jesus or not? And I was like, I remember the night I was like, you know, I actually said to the guy, I was like, I believe in God, but I said, I don't know if Jesus is your son, but here's it, but I will follow him if he is. Mm. And he, like, we, it's, a, it's not very good theology yet. I know it's not good theology. But that's when I was, I mean, I just, I believe that's when I was born again. And that, because everything changed from that point on. I suddenly, I started reading the Bible. I got into a Bible study. It discipled me. And so, yeah, I had a long way to go theologically. But I think that was, I'm not sure exactly the date, but I remember wrestling with that and thinking, am I going to follow Jesus? And I was like, yes, I am going to. And that's when everything changed. So that's the way, you know, even in UC Berkeley, man, people are like, that's a hard, it's hard soil. And I, I mean, I was like, yeah, but I was hard soil too. So it's appropriate. Um, that's how that's how I became a Christian. Amen. Well, so thankful that God worked in that miracle, worked that miracle in your heart, as He does for for every believer. You know, so, uh, salvation is the is a great miracle. And so, man, I'm I'm very thankful uh, for that for you, and thankful for you coming on, man, and just spending time with me to explain a a a, a crucial topic, one that the church has to face and answer, and and we have to be ready to give a defense for right for the hope that lies within us. And so I want to thank you for taking time out of your your busy schedule and your night away from your family to to come on and talk talk to me, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Chris. Yep. My pleasure. Yep. All right, guys. Uh, Till next time. Hey, grace and peace.